Hello and welcome to the Renwick Centre podcast. This week we chat with Tanya Marie Silvera, a music therapist who works with a very diverse client population. Tanya explains the role and shares stories about her experiences. Hello and welcome to this week's Renwick Centre podcast. My name's Trudy Smith. I'm the manager of continuing professional education at the RIDBC Renwick Centre. Today, today I'm joined by Tanya Marie Silviera, who is very excited. She works with one of our um, clinics, the Matilda Rose Centre. But Tanya, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Tanya. I'm a music therapist and I also have training in neurologic music therapy. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you about my work at Matilda Rose in um, paediatric hearing impairment. But I do wear a lot of hats at the moment, including um, PhD research, a bit of academia, and I also work in the medical setting too. So I'm looking forward to sharing those kind of combined experiences on this podcast today. Lots to talk about. So let's start with music therapy. So can you tell me what is a music therapist? and a little bit about the role. So when we think about what a music therapist actually is, I think it's important to actually think back to what a music therapist actually needs to do in order to become a music therapist or what an individual needs to do in order to become a music therapist. And within Australia, a master's of music therapy is required to qualify to be a music therapist and then you need to also register with the Australian Music Therapy Association. So I did my master's of music therapy with the University of Melbourne and now I'm doing my PhD with them which I'm really enjoying. Um, And in terms of the role itself it's actually pretty exciting because music therapy is getting more recognition for its uh, for its scope across the lifespan and across lots and lots of different areas and um, we've got music therapists in Australia working you know in pediatrics in in terms of hearing impairment like the work at RIDBC. We've got music therapists working in the community through NDIS supports. We've got music therapists working in various hospitals across the lifespan, um, across varying diagnosis. If, you know, there's an area that you think um, someone may benefit from in their own development, whether they have a diagnosed uh, disability or whether they have you know, they are neurotypical, music therapy really can help and assist. How did you get interested in the role? Um, Actually, it's a funny story. I was about 15, which uh, thinking back, I'm still surprised that I pursued this as a (laughs) 15-year-old. I was about 15 and my older brother was looking into courses uh, for for uni. Mm -hmm. And so my mum and I started just looking out of interest for me. Sure. (laughs) And... We, decided, we came across this, yeah, this music therapy course um, based in Sydney at the time. Um, and it just seemed to merge my interests of using music and helping people, which, yeah, sounds a bit cliche, but that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to use music to help people and we didn't know of any profession that existed um, back then. Um, and right in front of us in the newspaper, because back then, of course, everyone got the newspaper every week. Yes, they did, yes. <laughs> um, we saw this course advertised for music therapy, a Masters of Music Therapy. So when I finished uh, my undergrad, which was in um, jazz performance and psychology, uh, I was surprised that I still wanted to pursue music therapy, and I did. Fantastic. <laughs> and so many people have benefited from it, including our clients at the Matilda Rose Centre, as I said. So... 
Can you tell us a little bit about how music therapy supports those clients? So that for Matilda Rose, for those of you who don't know, this is a centre for children with hearing loss and additional diverse learning needs. So how does music therapy support those clients? So I suppose um, it, it supports them in such a diverse way. Um, the primary reason for referral to our music program is based on, um, you know, audition mm-hmm. and uh verbal output and and uh, socialization and what's really important to note about these programs is I think they're actually quite unique compared to any other music therapy program in that the speech pathologist and the music therapy music therapist are constantly um, collaborating so most of the time I think our groups aren't actually just music therapy because um, I'm so lucky to work with um, a couple of wonderful speech pathologists Carla and Karen who are also based at the centre where we plan and we um, coordinate different themes different um, exercises different interventions based on the needs of the kids so we'll be looking at um, in one session we could be looking at audition so the processing of the sound using different instruments the way we use our voices and the way that color might come in and and phrase things differently to get the children to help with their you know sentence structure and their verbal output we might be looking at goals of physicality so we might be looking at that upper limb hand and arm motion through instrument playing through movement through play or even their movement um, in their lower limbs so walking and and strengthen strengthening the lower limbs and it might even be as simple as you know sitting down and doing play-based music activities where they just shake their body in time with the music but um the overall kind of goals with these groups is that socialization and of course attachment because you know, there's no point with these children relying on the therapist for the progress. You know, we include the parents as much yes, as, as we can. Yeah. yeah. But we also have individual sessions as well, which um, are focused purely on the music and that kind of preparation for these groups as well. Yeah, sounds amazing. Is it, Are these just the only children that you work with or does music therapy benefit a wider range of clients? Yeah, so over the course of my career, I've worked in lots of different areas with children, with teenagers, with older people and um, people later on in life, including um, palliative care and end of life. And from from my experience and of course con- in contact with my uh, colleagues, you can just see the, the multifaceted benefits of music therapy. So within the, um, I suppose, the parameters of working with children, I've of course worked um, at RADBC Matilda Rose, focusing on these goals of, um, you know, hearing, speech, uh, communication, and things like that. But my other hat, I suppose, is working within the medical model, within Mm -hmm. the hospital system, and that could be in supporting children as they are about to undergo procedures, um, supporting um, adolescents if they're potentially, you know, in in mental health in a mental health board, um, so using music in a very, very different way to help them with their development um, and to help with their um, potentially their their grief and loss associated with you know being in 
a hospital. Like, I don't think people realise that grief and loss is more than just losing someone, yeah. you know? It could it could mean... A loss of mobility yeah. or a loss of freedom or a perceived yeah. um, change of circumstance. Yeah. And I also work um, more specifically, I suppose, within that medical model, um, within the parameters of neurodevelopment um, and rehabilitation. So I, I draw a lot upon that when I'm working at Matilda Rose. Fantastic. Mm. There must be cases that have stuck with you and shaped and changed your practice. Can you tell us about one or two of those? Yeah, so when the first one that comes to mind is working with... Um, well, I guess she's not so little anymore. <laughs> Lila um, and her beautiful mum, Nat. I, I first met Lila when I think she was about six months old and she'd already had open heart surgery. She has she has charge syndrome. Um, and the referral came through, I think, initiated by her mum, Nat. Um, and I just see them at their home. And, and the purpose of music therapy at that time was just that engagement and just to kind of see where Lila was at and potentially down the track help her with her hearing and speech and, and her development because she had um, a multitude of things going on so early on in mm-hmm. life. Um, so music would be a really beautiful way to kind of just meet her really mm-hmm. and... Yep. And had that beautiful connection with her mum. And Nat is, you know, a standout parent. I mean, all the parents are amazing, but just Nat would go above and beyond. And I remember in our first session ever together, um, we were sitting in their living room. I can still picture it, actually. And I was, you know, using some quite specific music therapy techniques to try and engage Lila, but not overwhelm her. Uh And... She responded and she vocalised and she continued to vocalise. and we That's had a bit amazing for her mum. Yeah, and we, we continued to vocalise and kind of made a song. We improvised back and forth. She was vocalising, I was vocalising, the guitar was going. And I looked around just to kind of see what her mum's response was and her mum was crying and then I just thought, come on, Tanya, keep it together, don't cry. <laughs> You've got to keep it together just for yes. this moment. You know, you're here for Lila keep and Keep this Nat. moment going. Just keep it going as long as you can. And it was just an incredible session. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, um, you know, just seeing how Lila responded to that specific way of using music in that therapeutic setting um, and her mum really understanding it, which was really important. She just understood it by seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, her mum and I decided to write a song together for Lila, which was kind of like a goodnight song. Yeah. Um, or it's a it's time for bed song, which sure. was the first um, lyric, and which I can still remember the song. And we wrote the song together and I recorded it. And then I shared with her mum kind of the specific way on how to use the voice mm-hmm. um, when singing that song to help with the settling. And um, she she sung it every night. Mm. And, I, yeah, I was so lucky to continue seeing Lila. Um, she's now in primary school. She's just started primary school, which is so exciting. A great outcome for her. Mainstream yep. as well, which is awesome. Um, that when I was working with Lila in the group setting, I decided to push that particular group a little bit more and actually do some instrument identification kind of exercises. And... 
Lila in particular was able to distinguish between, without seeing any visual cues by the way, she was able to distinguish between an egg shaker and a rainmaker. And for people who aren't that familiar with the kind of ins and outs of these percussion instruments, an egg shaker kind of looks like an egg. It does. And it makes a, (laughs) (laughs) it really looks like an egg. Um, And it makes a kind of shh, shh, shh sound. Yep. And a rainmaker is kind of like a little, a little pole, I suppose, which is filled with a similar kind of material to an egg shaker. And instead of shaking it, you kind of turn it up and it right. kind of sounds like the rain, I suppose some people see, mm-hmm. think, shh, kind of, it's a slower sound. But similar sounding. Very similar. The parents couldn't tell the difference. Right. And Lila, who has two cochlear implants... So thinking about her range of hearing. Yes, her access is in the low frequencies is actually very low. Yes. Yeah. She could distinguish it every time. After we, of course, did some prep yeah, in the sure. weeks leading up. And then one day I just decided to test it. Incredible. I just, it blew me away. I still can't believe it. The music was clearly just her thing. Yeah, yeah. She was so responsive all the time, every session. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have sessions where the music clearly isn't their thing? Yeah, and, you know, I think that's really important to identify. And it might not just be it's not their thing. It might just be, you know, as a music therapist, and I think this applies to any therapist, you need to be a therapist and an individual and a person before you bring whatever your tool is. So um, actually I was um, I was mentoring someone the other day and... She was telling me about um, a disconnect between um, what she implemented in a session and what she felt afterwards. And what she implemented in a session was based on beautiful theory and Mm -hmm. case studies. And it was so well backed up. You know, it was really, really well articulated. But afterwards, when I asked her why she felt uncomfortable, we realised that it was because it didn't match what she actually believed in. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. And so I think it doesn't just apply to music therapy. It applies across other professions. You just be the person that that individual needs you to be. Yeah. You develop that rapport with with the person. So with a lot of these kids with multiple needs, their introduction to life and their introduction to new adults isn't great. No, it could be really traumatic for them. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we like to think we're different because, you know, we're the cool therapist that comes with all <laughs> the instruments. all these instruments and I sing and we dance. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of the day, you're just another adult to yeah. them. So we need to take that time to develop that rapport and then we can start that beautiful therapy. And that's why we also have these long-term programs at Matilda Rose that we've really advocated for the importance of long-term programs rather than just like a 10-week program here and there. It takes you 10 weeks to develop rapport. (laughs) Absolutely. For some of these kids, it can take longer. So, yeah, that's so important. So Mm. I could talk to you all day. This is fascinating. (laughs) But are are there key messages you really want our listeners to take away about music therapy? Yeah. So I think um, one of the most important messages is in empowerment I always come back to empowerment so empowering the person that you're working with so if that's a child empowering the child empowering their parents or their carers or whoever's with them and and helping with their progress and that could be in terms of you know ensuring that you're giving an appropriate handover in teaching um, and sharing the skills um, that you're working on with with the child and it's not 
I, d- I don't think it's just, you know, telling the, the parent this is how we do it and hopefully you can keep doing it. It's about getting the parent to do it in the sessions. And I think as, as well, so sometimes as a new therapist, it might feel like, oh, I'm not really doing much. I'm kind of sitting back and telling them to do it. Yep. But it's so important. You're, you're holding that space and you're facilitating potential growth, you know, almost exponentially if the parent can continue this every single day. Absolutely. We're there once a week and they're there constantly. And yeah. If you can build their sense of self-efficacy and their yeah. faith in themselves that they can get the same outcomes, then yeah. that's the most powerful outcome result, yeah. I think. And it also addresses not just the outcomes for the child in terms of their neurodevelopment, but also addresses, you know, attachment and how strong that bond can, can be going forward. Because, yes, the child could have had a pretty traumatic introduction to life but the parent also was there throughout it all so and they just want to be there so I think it addresses a lot of things so that's probably my number one and I think um, an interesting thing that I've noticed is that um, you know parents can be a bit hesitant sometimes to sing and what I want people to remember (laughs) if there's one thing you remember from this podcast let it be this if you are the parent, if you are the person that has carried the child throughout, you know, their, while they're in utero, your voice, whether you think you can sing at pitch or not, is their desired voice. Mm. So if I sing to the child and, hey, maybe I'll sing in tune and it might sound pretty nice to you, the child is not going to respond as much to me as they will to you. Yeah. So that is the familiar and that is what... And you're, and you're the parent, you're, the, you're their most favourite person in the world. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So let if, if there's one thing that you take away <laughs> from this, let it be that. And, you know, don't feel scared to, to sing. And it can be a scary thing, especially to sing in front of someone who you think can sing well. It's not about that at, at all. Half my family don't know I can sing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really sing in public. I only sing in therapy. In therapy, sure. So... Let that be a take-home message for you, amazing parents, that your voice is the desired voice of the child. Um, I think uh, another important message in terms of working in the context of hearing impairment, and also I've seen actually across uh, across the lifespan and across um, yeah children of varying diagnoses, is that rhythm is actually processed more easily than melody. Right. So within the context of cochlear implant technology, I think it might be a bit easier to understand in terms of the range Mm -hmm. and the frequencies that uh, people may hear. Um, You know, instead of singing something like, say, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star... Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How yeah, she really can sing, everyone. <laughs> Instead of kind of linking the melody and the notes and things like that and making it sound what we would say is maybe pretty, mm-hmm. um, I'll sing it like this and encourage the parents to sing it like this to the children. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. So you can hear it's very rhythmic. It is. It's a bit lower. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very sharp and, uh, yeah, enunciated. And once parents start getting comfortable with singing in that way, not many people are, even my music therapy students who have been on placements with me feel a bit uncomfortable singing in that way to start off with. The parents' feedback, I'm telling you, every parent that's used this who I've worked with, they've come back to me the next week and said, you know, my child turned to me when I sung to them going to sleep. Is it just 
putting more acoustic emphasis on on the sounds and I think it's, it's better at getting their auditory attention. Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of um, just that that rhythm, that mm-hmm. focus on the rhythm. Um, and the processing and how easy it is to understand if people speak like this mm-hmm. versus when people say like this. Well, we know that for a lot of kids, high, high frequency access is where our ability to pay attention to connected mm-hmm. speech comes from. And so mm-hmm. for many of these children, that's early developmental if yeah. they have a cochlear implant. So I yeah. guess, yeah, that makes perfect sense that having something lower pitched yeah. that is more about rhythm than pitch is going to be more accessible for them. Yeah, and I think as well thinking, um, you know, when you when you learn another language, music really is like another language. Well, it, it is. There's There's been, um, you know, research, a lot of research actually now to, to indicate that the, the language centres of the brain are highlighted and activated when people are put into an fMRI when they're engaging in improvisation. You know, mm. it's musical improvisation. It, it activates the language centres. Um, so I think that's also something that kind of plays into it. And there's, you know, there's becoming a lot, a lot more people are researching these benefits and, and these areas of the brain now, which gives us a bit more substance. But someone actually explained it to me really well um, a while ago. I think it was Mari from RIDBC, of course, Mari. Yes, who we hosted last week in a podcast. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Mari, um, I'm pretty sure it was Mari. Um, saying how, you know, when we don't make the sound accessible, it can be like white noise to the child. And I think when people who are not aware of, um, you know, the auditory capacity of a cochlear implant technology, for different people, it's different for everyone, that it could sound like white noise, which makes all of us uncomfortable when we hear that. Mm -hmm. I think it just kind of fits and it just makes sense to a lot more people you know you don't yell louder no no <laughs> we, we coach teachers to not do that <laughs> yeah. you don't speak louder it's totally different technology yeah. So. Yeah, yeah fantastic if people have got more questions how do they get in touch with you um so you could contact me through my website which and of course we'll put those on the show notes yeah. um and i would really encourage you all you know i'm i'm just one music therapist there are so many of us now you know there's so many music therapists out there in australia in sydney even um just go to the Australian Music Therapy Association website, which I can give you the link for, and you can easily contact someone within your area as well. We also have, um, if people are interested in learning a bit more, we also have our national conference, which is in Sydney this year, which I'm convening. So I can um, give you some information about those conferences um, to see if people want to, um, yeah, to, to come and be part of it and not even just network, but just to learn more about the what they could potentially use themselves um, mm-hmm. at home. And I think if there's one thing I leave you with, it's that, you know, it's never too late to engage in any therapy or to learn a new skill. Um, and I learned this, um, I mean, I think I've always known this, but I was invited to do a presentation for SCIC last last year or the year before recent quite recently and um the audience were older people with cochlear implants Mm -hmm. or and or hearing aids and I just wanted to try something I asked them if they knew the song um you are my sunshine and a lot of them said they had but when I asked 
if people like singing <laughs> or if they like music, no one put their hand up. About 70 people were there. Not one person put their hand up. Yet I started singing it without the guitar because I wanted to focus on what I thought they could process in sure. terms of sound. I, I started singing it and I said, if you feel like joining in, please join in. They all joined in and we all sung in tune. And Instinctively. I, can, I cannot... Um, I could not explain it. It gave me goosebumps. You know, these people don't sing. They don't like music. Their hearing range is smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they were singing in tune. And the only thing I could think of was this concept in music therapy called entrainment, which is just synchronizing, that we just entrain to each other without meaning to. They were all shocked when I told them we sung in tune. (laughs) So it's never too late. Never too late. Never too late. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Tanya. I know that I've benefited from it and I'm sure that you all have too. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you to Tanya for speaking with us today. If you have any questions about the things raised in this podcast, please contact the Renwick Centre team via the Short Courses website or the Facebook page.